Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fox Valley Church. So last week, to catch you up if you weren't here or to refresh your memory if you were, remember we explored the Bible's one-sentence summary for God's name. His character, his, his personality can be whittled down into a single glorious sentence. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to funnel his character down even further. So I want you to think to yourself, if you were only given one single word to describe God, which word would you choose? What would you personally say? You only get one word. My guess is you would say all sorts of things if I were to, to poll you. Some of you might say powerful or wise or just, but as you know, the majority of you would probably say the word love. That'd be a very popular answer. And, and of course, that's a beautiful choice, right? Scripture is full of descriptions of God as love. But what if I were to tell you that there exists in the Bible a descriptor of God that's just as was 773. And of course, praise God, that's a huge number. But for this other mystery word, my hit count was 846. So this other concept occurs in the Bible even more than love itself. The word, it's holiness. Holiness. Sometimes I'm afraid modern Christians have, have so exclusively emphasized God's love that they've at times almost entirely neglected and forgotten God's holiness which is, is central, you know it, to, to Scripture, to the gospel, and to God himself. So this morning, I, I hope you'll gain a, a greater understanding and appreciation for the holiness of God. But even more important, I hope you'll encounter the holy God himself as his Holy Spirit moves in your hearts and minds and as you hear his holy word. I invite you now to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, in context, Isaiah was a prophet to God's people during the time in which they had all but abandoned God. So we'll explore now the vision that God gives his prophet at a time when Israel was sinful against God and they deserved death, yet they desperately needed grace. So for those who are able, would you please now stand for the hearing of God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your sin is taken away and your guilt atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For the note takers in the room, I know there are a few of you here. I've divided Isaiah's vision this morning into four scenes. So let's begin with scene one the Holy King. The Holy King. First off in this passage, I want you to notice that there's another died. In other words, he was mortal. Most lords, most kings like Uzziah have limited kingdoms, right? Limited power, limited lives. None of them live forever. Not God. His rule will never end and his life will never die. God wanted Isaiah to realize and you to realize this morning that it doesn't matter who's in power on earth as long as Yahweh sits on his throne. This is a message for the ultra-political climate of the 21st century, isn't it? Don't waste your hope on earthly presidents who will one day die even if their name is Joe or Donald. (laughs) Trust exclusively, ladies and gentlemen, in Yahweh, the King, because only He will rule forever. God's not just any king. He's a holy king. Notice also God's throne. In in verse 1, it's high and lifted up, which means God is exalted and honored. His glory, His honor, His power are higher than yours. So like stargazing at midnight, Isaiah could not see the gorgeous view without bending his neck. God was not on Isaiah's level, and He's not on yours or mine. He's higher. He's holy. Next, what should we make of God's kingly robe? Well, in antiquity, clothing was hugely symbolic. It's a status thing. The longer the robe, the greater the majesty. So for Isaiah, this sight of God's robe just filling the temple would have instantly registered for him. God's infinite robe declaring infinite regality royalty, and majesty. So imagine this with me right now 
in this room. God on his throne, alive and well, high and lifted up, and his robe is just filling this sanctuary, going through each and every aisle, weaving underneath your chairs and over your laps and flowing out the door and wrapping around the legs of your chairs. God's infinite robe covering every square inch of this room to declare the infinite majesty of an infinite king. Because he's not just any king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Our God is a holy king. Next, what about these mysterious seraphim standing, even flying, around God's throne? Buckle in, because this Hebrew word, seraphim, it, it occurs five other times in the Bible. And in every instance, the English translations render it snakes. A hundred percent of the time, a seraph in the Bible is a snake. And seraphim is the plural, snakes. I'll give you an example. In this same book in Isaiah, in chapter 30, verse 6, a list of animals there includes lions and donkeys and camels and snakes, the word seraphim. So, these are not normal angels in Isaiah 6. They're flying serpents around God's throne. The etymology of the word seraphim is burning ones or, or fiery ones. So the idea is of a poisonous snake, a snake that has a, a fiery, burning bite. I'll give you another example. In Numbers chapter 21, when God famously sends fiery snakes to bite the people for their sins, the Hebrew word throughout this narrative is seraphim, fiery, lethal snakes. So you're probably wondering at this point, what in the world is going on in Isaiah chapter 6? Why are, are fiery flying snakes surrounding God's throne? I think this might seem a little less strange to you if you explore Isaiah's cultural context. So let's take a look at a few photographs. Here we have King Tut's throne from Egypt. And I want you to notice on the side of his throne, what do you find? Snakes with wings. That's right. Flying snakes. And here's another image, a winged seraph, and it's guarding uh, the sacred tomb of Queen Nefertari in Egypt. So what these photographs show us is that in the broader culture at the time, snakes were a royal symbol of a king's power and divine protection. Why snake, though? Why not another animal? Well, in Genesis, God says that the snake is the most crafty of all animals. And then in Matthew 10, 16, the words of Jesus to his disciples, he tells them they are to be as wise as serpents. So you see, snakes, we know they're not as large as a lion, and they're not as strong with muscles as an ox, but they can easily kill either because of their wisdom. 
Snakes are wise to know when to sneak up with perfect timing to strike and make the smallest lethal bite to dominate the most massive animals. So these wise, powerful, poisonous snakes guard God's throne to communicate that even God's already infinite power and wisdom is adorned with even more wisdom and power still. Just as a bonus, God's royal throne is decorated and adorned with these awesome seraphim. If an enemy wanted to attack God on his throne, of course, God himself is impenetrable, but an enemy wouldn't even make it through the door without Yahweh's fiery winged snakes striking them down. Yahweh's not just any king. He's a holy king. And I want you to notice next that these seraphim, they don't interact with the infinitely holy God without shielding themselves. God created them in the Isaiah account with two extra sets of wings. They have four extra wings beyond wings for flying just to guard themselves from the sheer intensity of God's glory. Just like how you can't look directly at the sun, right, without shielding yourselves. Just like how Moses in Exodus 34 last week Seraphim cannot look directly in God's face and survive. He's just too holy. Let's listen next to what these flying serpents say. Verse 3 continues. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. I think it's about time in this sermon to define precisely what holy means. The beginning of Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, gives us an answer. It says this, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common. So, in other words, in the book of Leviticus, the opposite of holy is the word common. The opposite of holy is ordinary, just normal. So, holy then means unique, special, set apart. And that's why I've titled this sermon, God Has No Equal. This is God's holiness. It's His difference from all creation, and especially in the realm of righteousness when it comes to moral purity. Unlike us sinful humans, God the King, He has never made a selfish choice or a sinful mistake. He's different. He's holy. And this is why Christians are called to be holy as God's holy. We're called to be different, unique from the sinful world around us. We're called to minister to sinful people just like us, but we're called to live in such a way that when you interact with non-Christians, they should be able to tell that something is different that something is holy about your life as God is holy. And notice he's thrice holy. 
Not only is holiness one of the most repeated words and concepts in all the Bible, but also holiness is the only characteristic of God in all of Scripture that's raised to the third degree. God's not just holy, and He's not even holy, holy. Our King is holy, holy, holy. God is triply unique and sinless in comparison to all of creation. And so this declaration from the seraphim is so glorious that in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds, which means the frames of the doors, like the ones you walked through this morning, they literally shake in response. Not even they could withstand hearing the awesome holiness of God without trembling. Is this your response to God and to His holy word? Do you lovingly tremble with reverence? Or does an inanimate building have more respect and fear of God than you do? All in all, How does scene one apply to your personal life? We have God being alive as king, high and lifted up with infinite majesty filling the temple, power and wisdom surrounding his throne in the seraphim with a thrice holy character that makes even the door frames tremble. What does it mean for you in 2023? Well, one thing's for sure, it it means you are to treat God as holy, as special, and you're not to treat God as common. I saw on Twitter a while back, someone had tweeted, God has been so good to me lately, I just love that dude. I just love that guy. I almost wanted to scream through my computer. Don't you know how holy, holy, holy this king is you're talking about? How can you you speak about him with, with such little reverence, with such careless casualness? God's not just a guy or a pal. He's a holy God. And he's so glorious that when John saw the resurrected Jesus, Revelation says he fell at his feet as though dead. In my experience, Christians usually make one of two mistakes. Number one, on one far extreme, they exclusively emphasize the loving friendship of God, causing people to treat him far too casually. Or number two, On the opposite extreme, they exclusively emphasize God's holiness. And so they forget that he's also a close and caring friend. So Fox Valley, hold both of these truths together. They're compatible. Boldly approach the throne of God for, for friendship with a compassionate and loving father. Don't hesitate. And... Do so with the fear of the Lord in your heart as you lovingly tremble in the presence of a holy, holy, holy King 
who loves you. Let's continue with scene two to see how Isaiah responds. Because unlike God, Isaiah's an unholy prophet. Scene two, the unholy prophet. Notice until this point, Isaiah, he's kind of been a lame duck. He's done nothing. He's just kind of standing there. But now, he just freaks out. Look with me at what Isaiah says in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Can't you just hear the panic in Isaiah's voice? Isaiah knows that the only people who can survive the presence of a holy God are holy people. And Isaiah's not holy, not even close. He's unclean. He's just as sinful as the rest of Israel, and without Christ, so are you and me. Isaiah has seen the thrice holy God, not in real life, but in this vision. But now in comparison, Isaiah shifts his gaze around and looks within. And for the very first time, he realizes how unrighteous he truly is. It's kind of like those, those toothpaste commercials where someone's on the street interviewing people and asking them, do you think you have a white smile? And they'll say, yes, my teeth are really white. But then they pull out a pure white paint strip to compare to show them how really yellow their teeth are in comparison. It's the same with our sinful hearts. It's only after you compare your heart with God's that you realize, apart from Jesus, how wicked you truly are. You must understand the standard as to whether you will survive the presence of a holy king after death is not whether you're more righteous than your friends. It doesn't matter whether you're less sinful than your family members. It matters if you are holy as God is holy. And no one is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory and the holiness of God. But this is the first step to salvation from sin and hell and to eternal life with God forever because salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. In order to receive this gift, you must first despair in your own ability to save yourself. This is always the pattern. When Job saw God, he said, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. When Peter first saw Jesus' glory, he said, Away from me, a sinful man. And when Isaiah saw God, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, why lips? Well, the Bible teaches not that your eyes are a window to the soul, but that your lips are. Your lips reveal your heart. Jesus said, out of the treasure of the heart, the mouth speaks. So just like how when you squeeze an orange, what will come out? Orange juice, because that's what was inside the whole time. So when life squeezes you, what comes out of your mouth reveals the true content of your character inside that was there all along. So when life squeezes you and you sin with your lips, 
Don't make the excuse to your spouse or your children or your parents saying, you know, well, I, I was just really tired or hungry or I had a long day at work or I, I wasn't feeling well. Those statements may be true, but they don't excuse your sinful heart. They reveal it. Isaiah had unclean lips, revealing an unclean heart, and so do you and me. Thankfully, though, this this isn't the end of Isaiah's story, so let's continue with scene three. God makes his prophet holy. Scene three, the prophet made holy. Verse six says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So try to imagine me what's happening here. God's serpent has a burning coal in his hand. Perhaps he has six hands under his six wings, a hybrid creature, and and suddenly, whoosh, he flies through the smoke that filled the temple and toward Isaiah. At this point in the story, Isaiah has reason to fear the punishment of sin that he deserves. After all, there's, there's a poisonous snake with six wings, and it's flying toward Isaiah with fire in his hand, and he's equipped with a poisonous bite. Isaiah might be thinking at this point, I- I'm done for. I'm going to die. But listen to the beautiful twist, the climax in verse 7. And the seraph touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God has now made Isaiah holy too. He's saved. I'd like you to notice what Isaiah contributes to this this process. Isaiah does nothing. He would agree with Jonathan Edwards that a Christian contributes nothing to their salvation except the sin which made it necessary. Contrary to popular opinion, you cannot be good enough to earn your way into heaven. God decisively saves Isaiah from his sins. God looked with compassion upon Isaiah when he was freaking out to send this seraph to make atonement. And God can do the same for you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah's lips, which are the biblical window to his soul, are now cleansed, so his whole soul is cleansed. His whole being is cleansed, too. And some commentators at this point, they they point out that it's possible that the altar from which the coal was taken was the altar of sacrifice, the place where animals were slaughtered to pay the price for the sins of the people. And it's possible that this burning coal that touched Isaiah's lips was more specifically a burning piece of the lamb's flesh who was sacrificed on his behalf. And this blameless, spotless, sinless lamb who was slain, Jesus, if he touches your lips you can be made holy and saved too. This is the gospel through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. It's all about the holiness of God freely shared with unholy people.
Let's conclude with scene four. The holy God sends his holy prophet to proclaim his holy word to an unholy people. Verse 8 says this, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Notice the shift in Isaiah's words. He went from woe is me to send me. This is what happens for the maturing Christian, a newfound enthusiasm to share the gospel of Jesus with other people. If you don't feel any motivation today, any passion to tell others about Jesus, I I encourage you to do what Isaiah did, to bend your neck, to look up and to make eye contact with God. And if you see God as you listen to the Holy Bible, He will transform you, encourage you, and motivate you to share the holiness that He Himself has with you to share with other people too. So let's all say with Isaiah, here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Holy Father, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name in our lives. Teach us to treat you not as ordinary or common, but as sacred and special. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to us today to increasingly transform us into the image of your Holy Son. And we pray that as we have now heard your holy word, that we would be inspired, motivated, and transformed to share your holy gospel with the world so that others can be saved just as we are. We pray this all in the name of your holy Son, Jesus Christ.